Welcome to Talking Tax. I'm Siri Belusu. This week, we discuss a Supreme Court decision that rejected North Carolina's tax on the income of a trust. The North Carolina v. Kaysner decision was a big deal because the issue of state taxing rights has been heating up as tax professionals have gotten more creative in the ways they arrange trusts. Trusts are a widely used vehicle that primarily wealthy families use to pass assets to the next generation in a tax-advantaged way. Aisha Bagchi, reporter at Bloomberg Tax, has been covering the Kaysner decision and spoke with a trust tax expert about the case. Aisha, why does it get complicated when people connected to trusts live in different states? Well, the difficulty here is it's hard to know when a state has enough of a connection to a trust to be allowed to tax income that the trust is generating, especially when trusts are spread out. And the really big issue is that the Constitution requires states to be connected to the people and the entities they are taxing. But when it comes to these spread out trusts, it's hard to know what kind of connection the Supreme Court thinks is actually required. This was a really highly anticipated decision among the tax community. What was it that they were hoping to learn from the judgment? So people had hoped for a broader statement on what constitutes enough of a connection between a state and the trust for the state to tax the trust income. But Justice Sotomayor wrote what was, in her own words, a very narrow decision. It was tailored to the specific circumstances in the North Carolina case. All the same, it has sparked a lot of discussion about what happens next. So I spoke with an expert on the topic, Bob Kleinecht, who is a partner at Oakstone Law in Florida and has worked on trusts for years. He shared with me what the decision could mean for how attorneys structure trusts from now on. Thank you, Bob, for joining us today. Really excited to have you here. Oh, thanks very much for having me. So I'm going to start out with something really simple for someone like you. Can you tell me what a trust is? That's actually a very good question. what a trust is, it's, it's fairly easy to define in terms of a relationship. And actually, uh, Justice Sotomayor, in her opinion for the court, and Kaysner actually spent her first paragraph uh, discussing this rather nicely. Uh, so when I say relationship, a trust, is, a trust has three key parties, a grantor, a trustee, and a beneficiary. And the trust really is the relationship between the trustee and the beneficiary. So the grantor will contribute assets or property to the trust and charge the trustee with instructions on how to handle that property for the benefit of the beneficiary. So you've got this grantor who created the trust. You've got a trustee who's managing the trust assets. You've got a beneficiary who might live in a whole nother place who might one day benefit from the trust. And states are trying to figure out whether they can tax the trust income. Can you walk us through how the Kaysner case came about and what the Supreme Court ruled? Uh, sure. The, the Kaysner case, the way it came about originally was probably 30 years ago, a trust was created in the state of New York with a New York trustee. Uh, the trustee uh, had been replaced by a person in Connecticut by the time the, uh, the years in question uh, relevant to the case came around. But uh, there was no one in North Carolina when the uh, trust was created. The grantor was in New York, the trustee was in New York, the beneficiaries were presumably in New York. And then Kimberly Rice Kaysner moved to North Carolina in the late 90s. And at some point in the mid-2000s, the state of North Carolina said, we'd, we'd really like to assess some tax on this trust. And the only connection that North Carolina had to the trust was Kimberly Rice Kaysner and her minor children. Uh, they lived in North Carolina. And North Carolina had a rule that said, 
If a beneficiary resides in our state, then we will tax all of the worldwide income of the trust. And the trustee didn't think that was very fair, and uh, the case ensued and and proceeded up to the North Carolina Supreme Court and then was appealed to the United States Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court had a very uh, relatively narrow ruling. Uh, What they said was the beneficiary's residence was not enough of a connection to the trust and or the trustee for North Carolina to be able to tax. So in other words, there may be a number of different ways a trust can be connected to a state, but the simple fact that a beneficiary lives there is not enough to justify North Carolina taxing all of the trust's income. Now, if Kimberly Rice-Kasner had received dollars from the trust, which she in fact did not, then North Carolina would have been free to tax the amounts that she received. But what we're talking about here is a trust that did not distribute any assets to anyone in North Carolina, and North Carolina then taxing all of the trust worldwide income. And something happened with a related case that's been making the the news, this Minnesota case called Fielding. How was that case different from Kaysner, and what did the Supreme Court do there? Uh, The Fielding case was an interesting case. I think many of us in the trust world uh, would have rather the Supreme Court decide the Fielding case because a lot of us thought the beneficiary's residence uh, probably wasn't going to be enough. But in Fielding, which was a case out of Minnesota, which, again, a trust was created a number of years ago, not quite as many years ago as the Kaysner Trust was, but the grantor lived in Minnesota at the time that he created the trust. At that time, the trustee was in California, and there was one beneficiary in Minnesota, but the rest were not. And Minnesota had a rule that said, your trust is going to be resident in Minnesota, if the grantor resides in Minnesota when the trust is created. And so the issue there wasn't where where does the beneficiary reside, but where did the the grantor reside at the time the trust was created? And by the time the case rolled around, the trustee was actually in Texas. I mean, what did the Supreme Court do with that case? Uh, Good good question. The, The Fielding case, like I said, worked its way up to the Minnesota Supreme Court and then was appealed to the United States Supreme Court towards the end of uh, 2018. And then about February of 2019, the parties agreed, uh, after having seen the Kaysner case making its way uh, through the Supreme Court process, the parties in the Fielding case agreed that it made sense just to hold off to see what the result in Kaysner would be uh, before having the Supreme Court rule on uh, the Fielding case. And of course, the Supreme Court always reserves the right to reject a petition, which they call a denial of cert or a denial of writ of certiorari. So in, in agreeing to hold off, they were essentially waiting for Kaysner to be decided. And then a week after Kaysner was decided, there was a denial of cert in the Fielding case. Mm-hmm. And that means the Supreme Court let the Minnesota Supreme Court decision stand, that it was unconstitutional to be taxing the trust's income uh, based on the connections in Minnesota. But it also means that the Supreme Court didn't actually weigh in on its own thoughts on that question. Is that right? That's exactly right. So in denying cert, the United States Supreme Court said, we're not going to review the Minnesota Supreme Court's decision. And that does not mean they necessarily agreed with it. They just could have felt the time wasn't right to visit the issue. Uh, It's really hard to read too much into a denial of cert. But given it coming so closely on the heels of the Kaysner decision, uh, a lot of us felt that if the Kaysner rationale were applied to the Fielding case, the same result probably uh, would 
obtain, and therefore there was uh, really no co point in the court hearing fielding. That's a bit of a speculation, of course, but that's the optimistic thinking in the trust income mm -hmm. tax world. And I'm wondering how this affects the two sides of this coin. You know, how will states go about trying to get revenue now? And how will estate planners who are arranging trusts try to plan around state taxation? Um, it's a two-part question. How, how will the states go about retain, or, uh, trying to generate revenue in the trust world? It, it's hard to say. Um, to keep this in perspective, the you know, the percentage of states' income tax revenue that comes from trusts and trustees is relatively small. I mean, we are talking about a relatively small number of taxpayers here. Uh, that being said, there never seems to be enough to go around, so they're not going to part with this revenue willingly. The reality is that under the Kastner ruling and sort of the general sense of the community, the only really safe approach from a state tax authority's perspective is to tax the trust on the basis of where the trustee lives or is headquartered or administers the trust. Other sort of ancillary connections to the state probably just aren't going to fly under Kastner. Or at least they're going to face legal challenge. Uh, yes. Yeah. So estate planners looking at the Kastner decision uh, for starters, uh, if they happen to have clients in North Carolina uh, who have been paying fiduciary income tax, they're certainly recommending um, that a refund be applied for. In fact, North Carolina issued a notice uh, a week or two ago discussing the process for that. Uh, but a little more globally, what we're really looking at is finding income tax-free states and trying to locate the trust there or transfer the trust's quote-unquote situs uh, which is sort of a legal term for the where the trust lives, to transfer that situs to a state that does not charge an income tax. And in practical terms, that means having a trustee in, for example, Florida. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what you can say about broader ways to think about these issues. So, you know, on the one hand, you've got states with at least some connections to these trusts, and the trusts may have benefited from services and protections these states provided. On the other hand, you've got beneficiaries who get payouts from trusts who are ultimately going to be taxed on those payouts. And it feels like in the modern economy, figuring out who gets to tax what before those payouts happen could get complicated. How do you think about these broader issues from a policy standpoint? Yeah, a really good question, and I'm probably above my pay grade, but... Uh, from a policy standpoint, it seems like the best approach would be to have a policy and a set of rules that are fairly easy to define. So, for example, if the trustee resides in the state, it's pretty clear t to most of us that uh, state taxation of that trust is appropriate. Uh, the trust, as you pointed out, is availing itself of the laws and protections of the state uh, and if it's going to sue or be sued, it will do so in that state's courts. It will be able to enforce contracts in that state's courts. So uh, certainly that state would be justified in taxing the trust. It gets a little more tenuous, however, when you're talking about where the grantor lived many years ago and he or she may have passed away or moved away or where the beneficiary happened to move uh, 20 years after the trust was created. So from a policy standpoint, it seems like you're asking for a fight as a taxing authority if you're going to generate a series of rules that are very tenuous to begin with. And to put things in perspective, 
this is a relatively small percentage of income, but it can severely impact the trust and the, and the trust beneficiaries. Uh, so to me, it just makes more sense to have bright line rules, things that everyone can uh, certainly understand and interpret without having someone read them Supreme Court decisions. All right. Thank you, Bob. That's super helpful in understanding what happened here. And uh, we appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Here's the week's top news. Altera Corp, a unit of Intel, is asking the full roster of Ninth Circuit judges to revisit a dispute with the Internal Revenue Service over taxes on assets moved overseas. The company wants a review of the decision by a three-judge panel that found the IRS can make Altera include stock option compensation in cost-sharing arrangements with its foreign subsidiary. The case could have billion-dollar implications for multinational companies. President Donald Trump is in the midst of yet another lawsuit, this time attempting to block Congress from getting his New York tax returns. The lawsuit aims to block New York from acting on a law that allows its tax department to release tax returns to key members of Congress. National taxpayer advocate Nina Olson is ending her 18-year tenure as the voice of individual taxpayers. Bridget Roberts, Olson's deputy, will serve as acting leader of the Taxpayer Advocate Service starting August 1st. For more tax and accounting news, visit news.bloombergtax.com. That's all for this week. I'm Suri Balusu. Thanks for listening. Suspending the Rules is Bloomberg Government's weekly deep dive into what's happening on Capitol Hill. As is often the case with suspension bills, there's something of a theme behind them. Every Monday, BGov reporters and legislative analysts preview the week in Congress. This would be a rejection of what the Trump administration called for. And break down the biggest bills on the agenda. Autonomous vehicles are going to know everything about where we go and what we're doing. You can listen and subscribe to Suspending the Rules wherever you get your podcasts. Find more information at about.begov.com.